Greetings and welcome. This is Mark Waterfield, the president and owner of PATC, and we really appreciate you being at the PATC podcast. Public Agency Training Council is the country's largest provider of seminars for law enforcement and fire departments. Uh, We have well over 120 classes and approximately 60 instructors. We also have virtual classes and pre-recorded webinars at patceducation.com, or you can sign up for our in-person classes at patc.com. And today's guest is my co-host, but uh, also wearing the hat of being a guest as well, David Broadway. David, introduce yourself to our audience. My name is David Broadway. To all of you out there, I'm a retired law enforcement officer having worked on a local agency as a police officer in K-9. I was a detective, did some uh, PR work for the PD. Then I went with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement where I retired, which is a large um, state in the, in, agency in the state of Florida. During that period, I developed some um, areas of expertise, which I got to testify to in court. And uh, now I'm an adjunct at Western Carolina University in the School of Criminology, as well as an adjunct for PATC. Fantastic. You've done some really interesting projects. Can you tell our audience about the one-man play that you developed? Well, the one-man play was developed during the um, pandemic, and uh, needless to say, it didn't grow any legs during that period. So um, I took that opportunity to turn uh, the soliloquy, a one-man play, into a book called Ten uh, Seven: A Memoir of Reflection, Humor, and gratitude. And uh, it's selling some copies. It's on Amazon now. Wonderful. Well, we'll tell our audience about the book. What well, all is included there. Well, in the book, I go into, um, I've always been fascinated with human relationships and uh, human intelligence, what you can gather from, from, uh, from people just by talking with them and gaining their trust and respect. And uh, I thought back and uh, during my life, child, I came up through a turbulent time in an alcoholic, violent home, and uh, it kind of pre-stressed uh, me for my law enforcement career. Nothing I saw really surprised. And also, I had, I had to interact with police because of things that was going on in my family as a young person. And then as I got out, I, I realized I had to hide some family secrets and things like that. I was a little bit um, afraid of people finding out. And that kind of segued into being able to uh, communicate pretty well. And uh, I'm very proud to say, Mark, during my tenure in law enforcement, we got uh, officer evaluations and special agent evaluations. And uh, one of a uh, couple of years in a row, I got this, he has an uncanny ability to withdraw information from people. And I think that comes from purposeful communication, and which I parlayed into the course that I teach for PATC. And what class is that? That would be confidential sources, recruiting, managing, and documenting. And every step of the way is so critical in that process. However, to be a good recruiter of, for lack of a better term, domestic spies within our society that will feed law enforcement uh, information that couldn't normally get. What I love about it is there's no advanced education. There's no advanced training required to become um, good at this because if you're skilled enough to have a significant other in your life, if you're skilled enough to have a core of good friends, you have the skills, you have uh, what it takes to recruit criminal um, criminal sources to assist law enforcement and also gain the, um, the confidence of a victim to talk to you. 
And uh, I, I'm just really excited about that. And I have a story I love to tell about Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. And let me tell you that story. Mick Jagger, everybody knows, famous rocker for over 50 years now. Um, he and Keith Richards, I, I think they're formaldehyde on them or something because they just keep going. But Mick Jagger had an interesting uh, human interest story one time. And back when he was studying American blues in London, and he wasn't a wealthy person, he couldn't just travel to the U.S. to listen to Muddy Waters and B.B. King and some of the greats in the blues industry. He said, I've got to find a way to do this. And before all the technology was around, what what Mick Jagger would do was he would take albums from Muddy Waters, um, Guitar Slim, and all the rest of the old, old uh, blues artists, and he'd put them under his arm where people could see him, and he'd walk around a, a train station. He called it chat bait, and uh, I, I use that in class all the time. If an old stoner can think of a way to make himself approachable where people want to talk to him, how much can law enforcement learn from him? Because he overcame an obstacle, because not everybody in London, England, in the um, early 60s, late 50s, were into blues music. Music. Didn't know who um, Muddy Waters was. And so Mick Jagger walked around with these albums and I tell these guys, I said, okay, you've got a spouse, significant other? Yes. Do you ever notice somebody's shirt and say, hey, that's a conversation piece right there or the shoes they wear or a pen they have or a, or a regional accent? Anything can lead to a meaningful conversation. I try to make a connection with the criminal element. And uh, I think I had the advantage, Mark, where I found the criminals and the bad guys kind of fascinating. And uh, coming from a background of violence, oh, I can talk it with you. And uh, I, sometimes I think I had a step up because of my background. When I came in, it's in the book that um, I was kind of pretty stressed and uh, I'd been around the bars since I was a kid, you know, so um, communicating with people that were some people would think were uh, children of a lesser God. I found them fascinating. The people I worked with were interesting, loved them to death. But man, some of those bad guys were fascinating. And I, I could notice something about their shoes. I could notice something about the way they swaggered when they walked in the room to talk to me. And if I could look on the street, I would try to make associations who is the dominant on the street and then who might be um, minimized. And I would go after, I'd, like a shark, I'd see blood in the water. Somebody that was minimized on the street in the organization that I was investigating. And I might approach them after some study and say, hey, man, you're just not treated like the rest of these guys. You may want to switch sides. And um, I call that open water fishing. You know, most of us can do um, closed barn or barrel fishing, but the real skills of dealing with uh, some of the uh, underbelly of society is to go out there and recruit in what I call open water fishing. I just go up, my, I get them fascinated. I really drive home with the students that I have at the college as well as PATC that in communications, you're either interested or interesting. And in between is where the work happens. When they think that you're interested in what they have to say, and I call it in the dy dynamic relationship cycle, what I call this is maintenance too. Because if I'm talking to a bad guy always about business, well, it gets to be sterile communication. Whereas uh, if I find out their sister's looking for a job, if I find out their mother has cancer, if I find out they have a brother in an out-of-state prison, and I always end and start an interview with a person I'm trying to glean information from is a personal or a... Uh, individual, something that's individual to them.
and dear to them. That's that's a uh, a personal, emotional type of reaction to. And I'll say, hey, man, before we get going here, well, how's your mom doing? Did, did she get in with that treatment? Did she get in on that clinical study for cancer treatments and things like that? And some people say, well, don't you feel a little icky, you know, talking to those people? I said, no. And I said, what, when you really get good is when you really are interested. What happened with their mother? What happened with their brother? And then it makes a great transition into my objective. Once I get that out of the way, once I've ordered them a plate of food at a restaurant and we sit down and then we get to the really nuts and bolts of my investigation. But it's all about that relationship. And Mick Jagger was such, so ahead of his time. And you think of him as a great artist. However, what a communicator he is. And uh, the potential is endless out there. I can keep talking, Mark, but you can stop me. But I, it, it's a subject I love and a subject I can't understand that we are getting so sterile sometimes in society with our communication on smart phones and the computer. And uh, we forget that, um, gosh, the body language, the microfacial expressions, when have I hit a nerve? When do I need to back off? And when do I need to move forward with the subject? And it's all about maintenance. Um, I can identify an ideology of a person pretty easily. Uh, Some people identify with Baptists, Catholics, Hell's Angels and cops. We were talking to a Hell's Angels in jail one time in Florida, and uh, the interesting thing was, is nobody had contacted him for a while, and he was in there with a bunch of marauders and outlaws. That's not a good environment to be in. We hit on what I call a, a wiggle room. We knew his ideology. He was a gangster through and through. He's a three, a, you know, a one percenter. Then he hit on something. He said, I'll tell you one thing, Broadway. And I said, what's that? He said, gang is screwed up. It's going in a wrong direction. And ding, the light bulb came on. I said, really? Tell me more about that. And he goes, yeah, you know, we used to be this and we used to be that. Now they're letting this, these people pledge to the angels. I'm going, dang, that is something. And we just got personal, he and I. And I said, I get what you're saying. And then I took baby steps and I said, I'll tell you what, I can probably get you moved to another prison where life would be a little bit easier for you when you're not around a bunch of outlaws trying to kill you. And I said, but uh, give me some room here to work with because I have to show that you're worth the move. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I said, let's start. Let's start easy. Uh, give me the history of the angels. Of course, Mark, I knew a, a quite a bit of that history. But I said, give me the history of the angels. How did it get started? And um, what turned you a little sour? on their internal policies changing. And he lit up. He said, well, let me tell you about it. Back in the day when we were the original gang, gangsters, OGs, life was good. But now we're letting Hispanics in there. Now we're letting African-American. You know, they're beginning to associate with the gang. And now I'm going to extort this. You know, I'm just going to say, wow. And I'm going to become his most interested person. And um, I've always wanted to put together, this is something for you uh, folks out there listening. I talk about uh, recruiting on the outside, open open water fishing, recruiting in prisons is a untapped resource sometimes. The FBI does a little bit of it, and uh, myself and a few of my partners did a lot of it. Every chance we got, we talked to somebody in prison because we were their living newspaper. They got all the sterile news in there, and then we found out that through the information we got, we knew who was visiting them, who was putting money in their canteen, and it was kind of like having a, a, a someone trapped, and I was there out to get uh, to get some uh, new information. So um, just loving people, but you know, it's just like Baptist. You know, people say, well, he's a Baptist. Well, there's primitive Baptist, there's Southern Baptist, and a lot of other Baptists. Uh, Catholics, I said, what about Opus Dei? Opus Dei was a sect in the Catholic Church, and I try to just really get in there and find the wiggle room. They're Catholic, but how, how do they feel about a, a, a trigger topic like abortion? 
how do they really feel about it? And then I exploit that to get in their head. Well, let's let's talk to our audience about what type of criminal investigations do you use these techniques? I mean, I'm assuming drug investigations, but are there other investigations as well? Absolutely. And, and, and some people are shocked to hear that. But of course, drugs come to mind because they have access to a culture you're trying to understand. Yeah. And uh, they can talk the talk and, and they know what a CD, if they're talking on the um, on, a, on a wire and they say, man, those CDs didn't play right. And these people tell me it's cocaine. They're talking about kilos of cocaine that they, they feel like they got they got screwed on. So we get into things like that. But I, but um, after 9-11, I was put back into the JTTF or after that. That was formed because I had a background in the in the late eighties in terrorism, and uh, they put me in there. And they said, "Can you recruit some of these people from target nations?" And I said, "I think I can." I said, "Because I'm dealing with other cultures in the drug business and homicide and and street gangs." So I got out there and I got to know some of the people at the universities from some target nations that we had interest in. That was in uh, chemical engineering, which is a big thing. And I went by the mosque and introduced myself, and I asked them, uh, "Can law enforcement?" be of any help to you? Kind of like reverse engineering. Can law enforcement be any help to you? Have you been discriminated against in our country? Because we're interested in your in the impact and also how you feel about our country. In that, I got to work into some people that were in the uh, convenience store business. I got to work into some people that were, were doing some things of structuring, putting monies in the bank. So terrorism. FBI and CIA has been doing it for years, of course. But on the local level, they said, Dave, can you do anything at the university, the mosque around here? I said, I sure think I can. And uh, I documented several sources from countries that were of, of a concern on a terrorist nexus. Got a lot of attaboys in some reviews and letters, and I appreciated that because I was working with the FBI, working with immigration, which now, of course, is ICE. Got to lead them to some money being exchanged in some um, some strange ways over in Egypt. And uh, I was very proud of that. And Mark, it all came down to relationships, sitting down and, and drinking some god-awful uh, hot tea that I didn't really care for, but my face never gave it away. And um, so any, I think any crime that you're looking at sources, and, and I just can't believe that law enforcement uh, in a lot of areas haven't caught on to this fraud sources, fraud, the banking industry to go with the sources, drugs, of course, and terrorism. I'm a big believer that we have sleeper cells in this country that have given up the ghost. They're going, wait a minute, they've kind of cut my communications. I'm not getting the everyday message I need and I'm not getting any money. Well, what more fertile ground do you have that once a terrorist uh, individual gets in this uh, country and he's here to do us harm, but we've cut some communications to him and now he's floundering in the water and you get to go and get into his head in that wiggle room and his ideology and say, wait a minute, the American devils have not stopped you from going to the mosque. We don't want you blowing up our stuff, but can't you go and practice your religion in any way you want? And some of their eyes light up and say, you know, this guy's got it. You know, he understands. I just want to, um, I just want to praise Allah. I said, I'm all with you, you know? And, 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 uh, sometimes I, I went home to my wife, Lynn, and I tell her, um, not who was the interview, but I tell her a little bit about the interviews. And she said, well, weren't you kind of lying? I said, my interest wasn't lying. I was very interested in what they had to say, because the next time I have a community, uh, communications with that person, I'm going to ask him, 
how his visa is going, how his mother is trying to get his mother into this country and things like that. And he's going to look at me like I'm the second coming because this person cares about me. And maybe I do. And I will tell you this, um, people out there, call me anything you want, but 34 years starting in 1974, I put some people in jail that I really liked over the years. And uh, I had to shelf my emotions and go with the state statute or the federal uh, uh, code to put that person in jail because of genuine, unsterile communication. I wasn't stiff. I was interested. I leaned forward. I used the correct micro uh, facial expressions. And I was able to extract things that some people couldn't. And they said, you've really talked to a hell's angel? I said, he talks to me. And uh, we have a good time at it. So um, I don't know if you have any other questions, Mark, because if, if not, my enthusiasm will carry it. Yes, there's no doubt about that. You're very enthusiastic. And you know, we really appreciate our, uh, the opportunity to have you affiliated with PATC. If a typical police officer in a small to medium-sized department were to consider taking your class, what might you tell them to convince them that this is a tool that they need? Oh, that, I, I loved that question. I really do. I think you and I talked about where I am in North Carolina now that I'm retired. I'm about 40-something miles from Johnson City, Tennessee. And I would get a historical with that young officer. I'd say, did you know one of the most notorious outlaws in, in uh, organized crime history, Al Capone, frequented Johnson City, Tennessee? And I said, he had an entourage. He had people that were felt minimized at some time. He had people working around him. He says, uh-oh, I'm next to get shot. I've been disloyal. And if the officers in Johnson City, Tennessee, and the reason, let me put, put it in perspective, John Johnson City, Tennessee was about the halfway mark from Chicago to Miami. So he would stop off there to speakeasies and such as that. And I was thinking, man, what if a local officer would have been really attuned to his environment and saying, who is this guy in spats getting off the train and saying, uh, you know, he's important because he's got an entourage. And if, if they pay attention, every chain has a weak link. Every chain has a weak link. And to identify someone close to Al Capone and to ex exploit that and to gain information, taking baby steps to know that communications, I, I, I tell some people that, you know, everybody wants a micro microwave solution to a crock pot problem. It's a slow cook sometimes, and I might not see this guy and, um, uh, uh a short story now that I've told you about the Tennessee thing would be um, we have a fishing village in, in North Florida that's um, very, not very law enforcement friendly. And a lot of things were going on there, of course, smuggling. And um, there was a guy in the courthouse and I was coming through dressed up kind of dapper in a suit that day from a deposition. And I'm walking through and I see this old fisherman leaning against the wall and he's got papers and he's looking and squinting and scratching his head. And uh, I stop and I said, hey, man, can I take a look at that? Because opportunity knocks. I knew he was a local by the way he was dressed. I knew he was local by, by his leathered skin from oystering and things off the coast. So I stopped and said, hey, man, can I see those papers a minute? He said, you a lawyer or something? I said, I'm something. I said, give me the papers. Let me look. And so I looked at it and I said, do you know what you're looking at here? And he said, no. I said, this is a restraining order. I said, who's Llewellyn? That's my woman. I said, would you guys have something going on lately? And he goes, well, we got into a, a fight. She hit me and then I hit her. And I said, this is a restraining order. I said, let me explain a restraining 
restraining order to you. Nobody had ever done that. So I told him, I said, now this date, you must appear in court. She must appear. If you don't appear, this restraining order goes away. If not, he said, well, she hit me first and used some explicits there. And I said, it doesn't matter. It's a restraining order. I said, hear me out. Do you think you could take this paper and stay away until this date and see if she goes to trial? And it may be all over and y'all can move back in and smooch it up again. And he goes, yeah, I can do that. I said, all right, well, here you go, brother. And I handed him his papers back and he said, well, who are you? And I pulled out a business card. I said, I'm a special agent with Florida Department of Law Enforcement. But I said, I was concerned. You look like you were in despair over here. And I just wanted to talk to you a minute. Two years passed. I said, if you if you know of anything going on around here that's got you in an ire or, or things that maybe you would like to earn some money on telling me about. I said, you give me a call and we'll have another conversation. Almost two years later, I didn't hear from him for almost two years. And then somebody did him wrong and he called me up and the floodgates opened. And my supervisor said, how in the heck did you come across this guy? I said, um, chat bait. <laughs> he had back to Mick Jagger. I said, he had something in his hand that was of great interest to him. And I took advantage of that. And he said, we're going to work a smuggling case, aren't we? I said, yes, we are. I said, uh, we're probably going to uncover some bodies. And here's where you go, Mark, with, all right, narcotics is famous for having confidential sources, which I don't call informants because they're, they're really one of the most important things that I did was cultivate information, intelligence. My confidential source will get me into there. I've even said, I've even heard him say, well, you interested in a, in an old murder? I said, well, yeah, I'm interested in that. And uh, so you see how that, that goes around somebody that's in stolen property because thugs do thug stuff. Thugs know other thugs and, and, and thugs like using drugs. So I was feeding information to the fraud squad. I was feeding information to uh, violent, the violent uh, crimes, a violent crime squad. And I was in there with my main crux being dope. Now I also developed sources within those squads because they said, you know, Broadway did me a solid. If I come across something that he's working, I need to go ahead and give him a call, not take the credit for it, but give him a call and let him take a credit because he just fluffed me up. Well, that's great. I'm sure that your class is very, very enjoyable. I know we get high marks from it and uh, we really appreciate our relationship with you. I know that you're an extraordinary instructor. Thank you very much for appearing on this episode of the, of the podcast. It was a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at pa2cpodcast1 at gmail.com. One.